Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, and we do it from an authentically Catholic perspective. And here we are with yet another Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. One meaning of corona is halo of light, and together we've been finding the silver linings in this pandemic. Tom, we've been looking for halos for several weeks now. <laughs> yes. Normally, normally our halo search is heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. This episode will be played on various podcast apps and at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Today, we're going to talk about the human cost of social distancing with philosopher Dr. Anthony Flood, otherwise known as Tony. He received his doctorate in philosophy in 2003 from the University of Oklahoma, and today he's the an associate professor of philosophy at North Dakota State University in Fargo. And some of our listeners uh, may remember an episode with his friend, Dr. Paul Carson, and co-author on an article called Catholic Social Teaching and the Duty to Vaccinate. Uh, which was a, a popular and very helpful practical episode. Tony, welcome to Dr. Doctor. I'm glad to be here. Tony, as a philosopher, you probably look at the word human differently and more deeply than the rest of us. That word's tossed around a lot in our culture, but what does it fundamentally mean to be human? Well, in my main area of expertise is medieval philosophy, particularly the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. And one of his favorite properties of, that he thinks unites all human beings is what he calls risibility, the capacity to laugh. Um, <laughs> I like and that. He, he, <laughs> he uses it over and over um, that if you're a human um, with a you know, fully developed uh, capacities, you're going to have the capacity to laugh. That's going to be central to what it is to be human. Because uh, I, I don't know if psychologists have figured out what is the purpose of laughter. Is there a practical purpose? Um, well, you know, I, I think it actually ties into um, the, my real answer, which is the, the deeper thing, which I think is love, um, uh. the ability to love, which um, I would describe as the, the, the ability to consciously transcend your own interest for the sake of another person. So you said it ties into, but now are you suggesting that our ability or sort of our innate, um, our innate characteristic of laughing that's connected to our ability to love? I think so. I, I think it comes out of um, love with others. Um, that you generally don't just, and this is going to be relevant to some of the other things we talk about, <laughs> but you generally don't just sit in a room by yourself laughing, right? I mean, you mean that's bad if I do that? I, I mean, I've... you can. <laughs> it, we all probably do it at times, but it does seem to have a um, a social dimension at, at rock bottom that even if we're laughing by ourselves in a room, we're probably thinking of something funny that involves another person, right? You know, I, it strikes another. me as funny, pun intended. Yeah. That, um, I personally, on some notable times in my life, and if my children are listening, they will laugh at this, but I've become incapacitated with laughter. Uh, once it happened to me on a subway in the great city of Rome. And, um, but it has occurred to me, that's one thing that seems to separate us from our mammalian um, peers, you might say, is yes. that we have the ability to find humor in things that can be so intense, it can actually incapacitate us. Yes. And you, I, the medievals, and I, I think this is a, a 
a pretty good observation. I don't know if there's any studies that would <laughs> might contradict it now, but uh, of non-human animals, we just don't seem to see laughter. I mean, we can see animals that will imitate human laughter, of course. I uh, think, though, that our cats, when they look at us, they're laughing on the inside. Yeah, that would, yeah. I mean, we, we have two cats. They have trained us to um, take care of them and provide yes. their world. And yeah, they're, they're having a good time. Our true earthly masters. Tony, one of the main principles of Catholic social teaching we call the common good. And the catechism defines that it is the sum total of social conditions which allow people, who are typically human, either as groups or as individuals, to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. What does it mean to reach fulfillment as a human person? Um, I think related to what we just said. So what is the, what is the full flourishing of love, of, of, of this sort of conscious willing of a good to another person? Friendship. And friendship, of course, comes in different levels, but a deep abiding friendship, I think that is the, the truest fulfillment of a, an individual human being in communion in relation to another person. And of course, this isn't merely a terrestrial possibility. Um, charity, Thomas Aquinas defines literally as friendship with God. That is the essence of charity on his view. Um, and so the deepest fulfillment of our earthly life is going to be friendships we make with others, our spouse being the, probably the greatest of those friendships. Um, but then beginning this friendship with God now, and having it reach its perfection in the afterlife. Which begs the question, what is friendship? Um, very good. Um, so, <laughs> willing, I would say that consciously transcending our own interest and willing goods to another person, that would be benevolence, right? I mean, we would define that as benevolence. That doesn't necessarily equal friendship, right? We, we need reciprocity uh, minimally from uh. the other person. Um, to have that interpersonal relationship. And if you have two people willing the good to one another, they're going to have this shared life with shared affections, shared interest, shared activities. And, and that, I think, is going to be the core of friendship. You know what's interesting is in uh, Pope Benedict's um, encyclical Caritas and Veritate, I don't know if you've read that, but he talks a lot about reciprocity just as a necessary part of a human economy, but I don't recall him talking about it in terms of friendship, yet reciprocity and gratuitousness were the two biggest takeaways I got from that document. So is there a relationship between a healthy economy and friendship? Um, well, that's a good question. I, you, you, would, you would hope so. Um, if you had a healthy economy... In a, if you had a society with a healthy economy, but yet devoid of friendships, um, that would be an unfortunate society. Now, is there an essential connection there? Um, I, I think I would make the case, yes, if you're going to have any free market sort of approach to these sorts of things, it's going to rely on interpersonal contacts. And, you know, that you don't need to be best friends with the grocer, but, <laughs> or with your doctor for that matter in this context. Um, but you, you should have a friendly relation, right? I mean, or at least a friendly relation is better than not. Um, but, you know, Tony, as we think about this, these pandemic times in which we live, uh, and Tom and I've talked about this with other guests, um, 
it, it feels like in a way we're being reminded of how important friendship is. And if something interrupts that, if something comes be, between us and allows us to be less, I would argue, human, we, we as a people sort of start to suffer. But the pandemic has reminded me, and I think many people, that we're pretty dependent. We, we need each other. We need our friendships. We need time spent laughing and doing other things. And the social distancing quarantine has really sort of maybe struck at the heart of that in a way that, that say, a hurricane or a bad storm hasn't done in the past. Am I making that up, or do you think that's something about human relations? Oh, I, I think that's exactly right. I think that's, you know, the first week of sheltering in place and social distancing. Okay, that's not, it's <laughs> nice to have a little break. It's a staycation. Um, <laughs> Weeks two, week three, where are we at? Six, week six, seven. I don't know where we're at at this point. Time is kind of lost. Uh, you know, we've all lost a sense of time, I think. Um, yeah, you, you notice that it, there's something missing, and it's, you know, you, it's not something like exercise or getting out. You might be getting out and taking walks and, and you know, intellectual engagement with books and all of these different things. You have that, um, but there's, there's this big hole still there. Um, and that seems to be the obvious thing that would, it, that friendship is the thing that fills that hole. Tony, and, and we can do this. I mean, we can, we can do Skype, yes. we can do Zoom, we can do these different sorts of things, but um, they, they pale in comparison to an actual physical exchange with a person, you know. In On the other side of that, I want to bring in, you know, maybe there's something good about some of this uh, physical isolation. But one of my favorite quotes from a philosopher uh, is from Blaise Pascal. He was a, a polymath, physicist, inventor, writer, Catholic theologian. He did everything. Well, in his book, which is called Thoughts or Pensees, he said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. What does that mean, Tony? That is an excellent quote. Um, and, and let me give you another uh, thinker along those same lines. Joseph Pieper, mm. a 20th century German philosopher, has yes. a wonderful little book entitled Leisure, Leisure. the Basis of Culture, Yes, um, where he makes a similar point. Um, ah. And, you know, I, I think I'm going to quote Thomas Merton here. Actually, I'm going to paraphrase because I can't remember the exact quote. Um, <laughs> Thomas Merton says something to the effect of we're not at peace with each other because we're not at peace with ourselves. We're not at peace with ourselves because we're not at peace with God. Um, and it seems to me that if we come to that core notion of sitting quietly in a room, that's when we have to confront the creator, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, you know, you, you can distract yourself with the world, um, with all sorts of busyness and different things. And, but when you're sitting in a quiet room, you can't run anymore. There's no place to go. Um, it's you and it's God and you, you have to make that connection, um, or consciously flee from it. Um, so I think if you have an inability to do that, I mean, as Pascal suggesting, that's, you know, he's touching on that Merton quote, right? I mean, mm -hmm. your, your problem ultimately is you don't have this right relation with God. And that's, that's just cascading into all of these other problems. 
You know, not not at all to pick on maybe some of our other brothers and sisters in Christendom uh, who might suggest that that life is all about just me and Jesus. Um, ah. But it feels like in, in this quarantine that it's really, because I can commune with God if I can get that peace in quarantine really nicely, but I'm still missing what some would say is the horizontal relationship. I, maybe I have the vertical one that's in line, but if I don't have the horizontal one with my other brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm missing a piece of the equation that, that results in you know, fulfillment and happiness. Um, and, you know, we're, we're not just alone. We're at mass with other right. people that are next yeah. to us. And I know this Easter, it was really tough on me and my family not to be there in the pews complaining that someone was too close to me. Uh, we would have, we would have loved to have them too close this sure. Easter. Yeah. No. And that's, you know, you know, theologically, that's the notion of the body of Christ, right? I mean, it's not just the head Christ and you, the hand, it's, <laughs> you, you know, your part of the body, you're a cell in this body and you don't make any sense outside of the relationship to those other cells, right? I mean, it's chiefly, it chiefly, it's that relation to the head that gives the deepest meaning. But, you know, even with that, if you're not in relation with those other members of the body, you're, there's something dramatically missing. Uh, yeah. Tony. Now, now, now in defense of, of our brothers and sisters they were the one doing the drive-in easter services and all the rest <laughs> yes um, they did point. a better job with community than perhaps the catholics did you're so. <laughs> here you're here, here so so tony we are known as human beings but especially in america we seem more like human doings who don't know how to be you know what truth is contained in this realization that modern man is not good at being you know something pascal wrote about centuries ago you know, I'm, love is going to be my, um, the thing I keep coming back to. Um, and you're not even from the 60s. Yeah, I know. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, you, you write a book. The last book I wrote was St. Thomas Aquinas on Love. Oh, there you go. I, I had the, the few people who have read it have said, that is the most unromantic <laughs> book on love ever written. How could it be so dry and boring? Well, it's like, well welcome to Aquinas. But... Um, yeah, so it's going to be that version of love. But, you know, I, I think this dovetails with that inability to sit in the room. You know, I'm, I'm talking about love and, and seeking the good and, you know, actively trying to get the good to another person for their own sake. Well, that's doing. Yeah. Now, what is being? Well, if through the lens of love, it's the passivity of being loved, of allowing another person to you know, will and seek the good for you. And I, I think that's actually where we struggle hmm. oftentimes in a love relationship is that, and, and this is human and divine, right? We're not letting ourselves being loved because that's not completely on our terms. Um, hmm. And so human doing, I, I would just kind of keep going back to, yeah, you know, the more we're doing that it being industrious and all that, I mean, obviously there's all sorts of benefits and, and society doesn't function without that activity, but at rock bottom, um, we, we don't want that to become a distraction. We want to allow ourselves to be loved and accept the love of God and the love of others. Well, you speaking know, on, of a really, on a real practical note, 
uh, I know I've remarked several times, I wish I knew how many times when people have asked me on a Monday, how was your weekend? And I say, it was great. I got so much done. Yeah. But in reality, I, said, I should say, it was great. I did absolutely nothing. Uh, but that's <laughs> Except not very, loved. <laughs> that's not very American. And it's certainly not very Western, is it? Uh, for us to say, good point. we're just good at, at being. And, and maybe this pandemic has helped us. I mean, certainly if you monitor social media, the way a lot of us do, you see, you see people kind of stumbling on this idea that I kind of like the fact that I didn't do anything except I played board games with my kids and things that I wouldn't have done if I hadn't been forced into this situation by these unfortunate external, you know, factors. Yeah, yeah. I'm just realizing that today because I've got all these things I'm a part of and now I only have to do a subset of them and I'm enjoying <laughs> my life a lot better. I don't want to be doing nothing. But just yeah. the things I love, like these podcast things, they're kind of fun. And so I get to pick the brains of philosophers like you, but you were talking about friendship. And so this brings us uh, someone that the three of us know and have interacted with, Paul Carson. And it's a question he's posed to me many times, either on the, on the podcast, radio shows, or just offline. And that is the question, is social distancing limiting us in doing what it means to be fully human? Have you contemplated this at all in the last month, uh, Tony? And if so, what have you come to? Yes. Now, I think there is a, a grand irony of this social distancing. <laughs> and it may just be for a subset of us. But for those of us with kids at home, with school-age kids, social distancing means being around a lot of kids all the time. Right? So, you know, I, I hear some of these descriptions of, of solitude and quiet and, and I'm thinking, yeah, that, that doesn't sound so bad. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know how it is possible, but I swear our house becomes physically smaller with each passing day um, with the five of us in it. Um, so, I mean, I, I say that somewhat tongue in cheek, but at the same time, I, I think the social distancing I, you know, I'm not unique with that. I mean, all the all these school age, um, you know, families, they're, they're confronted with the same thing of, of being together in a way that perhaps they've never been before, where it's just 24 seven, I mean, literally can be 24 um, seven. So that's not where your question's going. But I'm just going to throw that out there. Yes, as that's one of the ironic aspects of, of social distancing is it's it's led us to socially distance ourselves from some people while actually drawing ourselves even closer to others. Um, yes. And, and that's, that would be an interesting thing to think about, but yes, I mean, obviously, um, I mean, so yes, this, this monastic tradition of, of Catholicism, right. This withdrawing from society and dwelling with God, that ability to be in the room in, in a peaceful, calm way by yourself. I mean, that, that's good. That's, you know, that, that's part of the Catholic tradition. It, it's, a, I think, a deep and abiding part of the faith. But at the same time, for those of us who are not in a monastic lifestyle, um, even an introvert like me, um, I, you know, I'm still a fairly active person. When you cut that off, it's that we can still maintain that relation with God. But I think our relation with God does get concretely realized in our relations with other human beings. Mm, wow. and, and I think that's what's being cut off here, um, or at least limited or 
redirected or taking on a new form, um, it, it has definitely changed. I mean, that, that's the obvious truth here. It's changed as of, you know, two months ago from today, there, there is just something fundamentally different. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's, it's not just a selfishness of you just want to be around others to, you know, distract you. I mean, obviously any of theirs, there can always be instances like that, but I think there is a healthy thing we're missing out on with social distancing. Um, and it's that being with other people in a, in a deep, meaningful way, in a physical um, presence sort of way. And, and, you know, to go back to my tongue in cheek sort of starting point, right? Laughter. I mean, it's, it's harder to, to have that laughter with other people over the phone and online and, and texting and all of the rest. Um, and there's a whole variety of, of things like that to be a human being um, that are just on hold at the moment. It's interesting, uh, as, a, as a self-admitted extrovert um, <laughs> in a radio show of introverts, uh, I would say I left practice, medical practice, for a couple of years and um, I was very shocked to realize what I missed um, was the personal intimate interactions with patients in the exam room setting. Uh, and ironically, during this pandemic, I, I think I've experienced that again. It's, it sounds a little silly. I miss hugs and I miss shaking hands and, and I miss those physical um, exchanges between physician and patient that that we in medicine are so privileged to get a chance to experience if nothing else the pandemic has been a reminder i think that that really is a privilege that that patients invite us into that that space and that relationship and we've we've had to set up barriers now and and at least i can say i don't like that i i miss it greatly yeah and and that's hopefully the silver lining um this isn't a permanent situation um, you know, we can reflect on what we're missing so that when it's back, we can not only appreciate it, I mean, we'll obviously appreciate it in the short term, but, but developed a sustained sort of gratitude and appreciation for those things. Um, going you you know, the aphorism absence makes the heart grow fonder. I have found in my life, it's the, it's the opposite. Maybe in the short term, but in the long term, absence makes my heart forget. <laughs> so I hope that doesn't happen to people, but I'm probably just an outlier. Tony, well, I, I noticed that when I go out running now on trails, I'm seeing more people than ever walking, which I think is wonderful. Yeah. But I have also noticed that I am viewing other people as a potential threat to my health. And I suspect many other people are doing the same thing. This can't be healthy for human relationships, can it? No, it cannot. In fact, I have um, one of the many, many things I get a, you know, that spring brings to me are, are my allergies. <laughs> and it's been this, you know, in those times when I go to the grocery store or something, if I'm having a bad allergy day, it's just like, oh, man. I mean, if I'm, you know, sneezing is not a symptom of coronavirus. I don't think there's <laughs> but... been one coronavirus patient who sneezed. But here I am sneezing. And this is the sign of somebody who's having some sort of health episode. Um, oh. and, and yeah, I get those looks and it's, you can't just say, oh, don't worry. I'm not, it's just, just allergies. I'm not contagious. Right. As I found in life that anybody who's ever told me they're not contagious, you know, that's <laughs> that, my red flag. This person's contagious, right? Um, Welcome to our world. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, 
And so, yeah, I mean, so I think the big thing that comes about from people viewing us that way and us viewing others that way, or we, we viewing others that way is alienation, right? I mean, th there is a deeply felt alienation if it's sustained, not if it's just an occasional somebody glances at you. I mean, you, you can deal with it, but if it becomes the fundamental way that others relate to you um, and, and you relate to others, particularly strangers. I mean, let's just focus on, on, on strangers in, in a grocery store. Um, that is going to be deeply alienating and it's probably going to have detrimental effects even once uh, the sirens, you know, blows and the all clear, we can go back to being normal. Um, there's going to be some long-term consequences of this. So better than viewing people as threats, Aquinas talks about what's necessary to love others. But there is an unexpected twist in what you taught me, he says. Yeah. So um, Aquinas's view is that the first person you should love is yourself, um, what he calls self-love or the love of self. Um, now, interestingly, he'll have plenty of passages that say, the root of all sin is self-love. <laughs> so he has to distinguish what he calls proper self-love from improper self-love. But, but either way, the idea is inextricably, the individual loves you know, him or herself, and, and that's just the way it is. Um, we're just hardwired to love ourselves as the first being that we love. And our job in life is going to be, how do we order this love? How do we direct this love? Because it can either go good or it can go bad. And Aquinas thinks the first other person that we recognize implicitly that we ought to love is God. Um, God is the source of my being. So he, he says that you should love yourself more than you love your neighbor. And that's the surprising part. Hmm. Um, but yes, you need to love God more than yourself. And if you don't, it's going to lead to a dynamism where you're actually incapable of loving your neighbor properly. So there's a priority given to the self-love. And I'll add one more thing to this for Aquinas. He says that the way that you love yourself is the model and template of how you love others. Hmm. So you can't, you're going to just instinctually, and this makes sense, right? You're just going to instinctually relate to another human being as you would your own self. And so if you have a disordered love of self, well, that, that's going to undermine your ability to relate to that other because you're just going to be treating him like you treat yourself and you don't treat yourself well. So, you know, you're not going to be able to treat them well. Sorry about that. So some people isolate themselves out of selfish pride or sinful pride, but right now the shelter in place orders are being imposed on us. How does this change the, the, the moral calculus of being in isolation as a potential detriment to being fully human? Yeah. So, so you know, going from this Thomistic standpoint, so the prideful person, the, per, the satanic pride, right? Lucifer, Aquinas would say, is the loneliest person there is. It's, it's an absolute willed loneliness because he has cut himself off first from God, and then really from any himself. meaningful relationship from any other being, mm. right? Any other angel in this case. Wow. Um, so pride leads to self-isolation, loneliness, um, but in a willed sort of way. Now, obviously, it, you know, if, if 
this is being imposed on us, if isolation is being imposed from us, it's not coming from our deepest interior. It's not coming from our heart, as the scriptural tradition would, would put it. Um, and that, that's a source of great hope, right? If, 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 if isolation is not coming from our heart, then habitually we're still able to relate to other people well, even if we don't have the occasion to actually relate to them in practice. Um, and so again, it's this idea, I think, that when things return to normal, right, we, we can take these lessons and um, start up afresh and, and have so this sort of... Could this isolation, this physical isolation, now many people are suggesting that the term social distancing is a bad term. I've read a lot in the psych literature lately that it should probably be called physical distancing because we want to still be socially close. But say that this, this social isolation, which is part of this distancing, which is now a, a good habit, could that in a month or two be a bad habit that could continue to affect us negatively? Yes. I, I mean, I think going for, for the next two years, I bet if you are in the grocery market sneezing or coughing, you will have people looking at you in a way that for the previous, you know, however many years you've been on this earth, you've experienced. Um, and, and that two years might be conservative. Um, in other words, we're going to have this lingering concern that other people are a threat. And, you know, part of this in a, is even gets worse. You know, something I've heard over and over again, and, and you know, there's data that suggests this, is, you know, when talking about the calculus of social distancing and everything, we, we, we keep using the common flu, right? The, the annual flu as the, the point of reference. And, right. okay, so we allow 60,000 to die of the flu every year. Uh, this is just part of how we operate right. um, as a, in terms of a public health, that we yes. could socially distance and, and avoid people dying from the flu, but we don't. Um, you know, I, I think some of these, coming back to these everyday common illnesses, this is where the lingering effects are going to be. That even if we come up with a vaccine for Corona tomorrow and we're all vaccinated and it's not, it's, it's gone. It's like polio. We don't need to worry about it anymore. Um, we're going to have this heightened awareness, awareness of all infectious illnesses and diseases. Mm. And I, I, I think it's going to be seared in us for a long time coming. And, and I know in the medical world, you know, by training, all of you have to have a sense of this. Well, now it's all of us lay people, but without the additional training that probably helps soften um, and prepare you for, for how to deal with, with, you know, contagious people. It is fascinating. In a sense, you know, in a period of four or six weeks, you know, the entire world has become amateur microbiologists <laughs> and, and virologists. Um, and, and I think to your point, there's been a part of me in talking to, to medical staff and patients and others to think, see, I've been telling you all along, flu is a big deal. You should have been listening. Um, we had so many elderly die of flu last year, yet we couldn't get anyone to pay attention. Um, and I'm thinking, so maybe you'll pay attention next year to the flu. That might be a positive thing to a degree. But I agree with you. I think some societal norms are going to be maybe forever changed, or at least in a generation changed um, because of this pandemic. Uh, but it really has people reevaluating what it means to 
interact in public. And I'm not so sure that'll go away when the political thought leaders suddenly say the crisis is over. Right. Tony, I have a a question. I think that true social distancing, not just physical distancing, has been happening over the last 10 years or so with the advent of smartphones, tablets, laptops, and now we have this physical distancing on top of that. What do you think is the interplay between those two? Do you think that social distancing due to technology might get better or get worse or not be affected? I I think this will actually help. Uh, This could be a benefit. Um, You know, I think what's happened here, and and this is okay, so, you know, just show all my cards here. I I am not very technologically savvy, and I have no interest in being technologically (laughs) savvy. Um, I'm just not a texter. I'm not a um, you know, and I'm not, I'm not all that terribly old. It's just partly a, a, a stubbornness sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, as a philosopher, as a reflective person, um, I have an opinion on everything, but, but I observe things and, you know, there has clearly been this trajectory of people who rely on their technology to communicate. Um, you know, this probably started with things like Facebook. 20 years ago, um, it, it certainly seems to curtail a person's ability to carry a conversation um, in real time in the physical presence of another. Now, now this is obviously a generality. There's a yes. thousand exceptions to this, but, but I think there's an inner trajectory to using technology as your chief means of communication that has a detrimental effect on non-technological communication. Okay, well, I think what we've, so in my mind, we've been on this path. Well, what I think we've done now with the social distancing is we've kind of jumped ahead 30 years. Just overnight, we've jumped ahead 30 years of what it would have been already on my predictive analysis. This is where society was going to go, where people just of their own volition chose to not interact with people physically any more than they had to. Um, So meetings would be, you know, online instead of in a, in a, you know, a room at work. Um, Teaching would be online. There's no need to be in the classroom. You know, a lot of our social gatherings, just online, watching mass online, right? In this Catholic example. Um, But now that we're here, now that we've jumped ahead, it's kind of, it's, it's unnerving and you're just, it's easier to be reflective and to say, well, I don't want to do this, right? I don't want life to be like this. It's like one of those sci-fi novels where somebody, or just the, um, uh, forget sci-fi, um, Charles Dick and a Christmas Carol, right? I mean, you know, the, the, the ghost of future, of Christmas future, is that his name, right? Where Scrooge gets to see his future. He's like, well, I don't want to continue on this trajectory and end up here, right? We're kind of right. seeing where we potentially could go. And I think it could be a cause for us to re-examine our current practices and say, technology, great. Technological communication, obviously great. It's going to be a non-negotiable part of society, but it doesn't have to be the default way that we communicate going forward. And technology, I mean, to your point, I think we're learning. uh, And we're learning it in the medical relationship. Tom Tom and I can certainly attest to from the physician-patient relationship that technology is no substitute for actual human intimacy. Amen. Yeah. Uh, and that we need, we need to be in each other's presence. 
I need to be able to touch you on the leg and you need to be able to touch me and we need to be able to see each other's emotions. Technology is a nice tool, but it is not intimacy. And, and, and we lack that now. Yeah. Tony, uh, another philosopher I'd like to refer to, you may have heard of him, uh, Carol Wojtyla, otherwise known as John Paul II. <laughs> sure. And, and he, he gave the church the gift of the theology of the body. And, and if there's one thing I remember about it, it's the fact that he says uh, the body uh, is the way in which human beings can love each other. It's only through the body and that the body is meant for me to be able to be a gift to another. Without the body, I can't be a gift to another. Does this so-called social distancing impact the ability of my body to be a, um, a conduit of gift to another? Oh yeah, most definitely. Um, you know, let, let me give a, a non-human example of, of what uh, Chris was just talking about. So one of the things we've done during this, this um, time of social distancing and staying at home is we uh, hatched a bunch of chicks um <laughs> yeah my, my mother-in-law lives out on a farm so these chicks eventually will will live out the rest of their life there <laughs> their short so life very <laughs> brutal and but, you know <laughs> short nasty and brutish right yeah um <laughs> but they, they actually they hatched over the weekend um and you know watching the behavior of these these you know little monsters is you know <laughs> When they're energetic and awake, they're sitting there, they're just pestering each other nonstop. They're pecking each other. They're, you know, one will be, you know, semi-resting, another one will come up and intentionally bump into it. And they'll kind of, you know, not quite fight, but they, they're a little feisty with each other. Then you come back a half hour later and they're all sleeping and they're all, you know, huddled together, yes. right? Cuddling and, and they look like they're just as peaceful as could be. Um, you know, we're, we're animals, right? We're rational animals, but we're right. animals. We, we have that animality. We have the materiality, the, the body. And it's just an essential part of what it means to be a human being. Um, you know, Aquinas talks about even, you know, if when you die, when your soul is separated from your body, you're incomplete. Um, yes, you, you can continue to be you in an uh, extended sort of sense of the term you, separated from your body but you need your body even in a state of blessedness to be a complete human person um and i and i think it's it's not just this chunk of matter we're hauling around <laughs> it's us right my body is me as i as i tell, use the example of my students right to tell my students if i came up with a pencil and, and you know stabbed your hand um yeah my classrooms aren't always the most um, but you know what are you going to say to me you know after all the expletives you're probably going to say why did you do that to me right and I could say well I didn't do it to you I did it to your body right but that doesn't make any sense right I did it to you driving a pencil through your hand that happened to you because you are your hand or at least your hand is an essential part of you and and yeah to take the bodily element out of things to over overly spiritualize um is i think a drastic mistake tony i think all people have been observing this pandemic through their own personal lens their own personal interests their own personal expertise as a philosopher what has kind of heightened your thought processes or gotten your attention more than anything else in this pandemic um, you know, probably a lot of the things we, we've been talking about, 
Um, you know, I, I do find a little humor in um, sometimes people getting what they wish for and not being happy about it in the sense that, you know, three months ago, there's probably a lot of people in a hectic job who would have said, oh, I would, you know, give my left arm to, to have a, you know, extended break from all of this. Um, yes. Well, here's your extended break. Well, I hate it, right? I'm going to go back to work. <laughs> um, but, but those are always moments of good self-reflection, right? I mean, sometimes, you know, if somebody gives us exactly what we thought we wanted and it doesn't make us happy, it's a good occasion to say, well, why not? Um, where, where did I go wrong? Was I wrong in thinking I, you know, maybe I said I wanted it, but I didn't really want it? Or I genuinely wanted it, but it turned out not to be the sort of thing I thought it would be. Either way, it's a cause of, you know, just a perfect occasion for self-examination. And, you know, the philosopher in me, you know, be reflective, 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 reflective. The more reflective you can be about who you are as an individual and about what is important in your life, I think that can only equip you for a better life going forward. Tony, you're the academician, but I'll give you a practical example. I had a patient uh, at the end of last week, and, and we were talking about how the pandemic was affecting her, and she was explaining that her husband, who works in manufacturing, uh, has now been out of work several weeks, and you can imagine what that's doing to the family, and she said, I, I hope you'll pray for me, and I said, uh, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, the economic impact and this and that. I said, I'm sorry, are you, are you getting food? She said, no, pray for me because I want to murder my husband. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, because she did not like him being home 24 seven, even yeah. though she may have wished for that, you know, six weeks prior to the- She to the didn't. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and even going back further, right? I mean, there's always that time in our courtship where you genuinely think, I would love to spend every waking moment of my life with you. Um, well, now we're here. I'm, I'm, I'm spending every moment. And um, is it what we wanted? In a sense. Um, but again, you know, the, the, this, you know, kind of go back to our Catholic faith. You know, no created good, even another person, you know, no created finite good is going to ultimately satisfy the will. It's, it's not the sort of thing that's going to give us true satisfaction, mm. which is why Aquinas always says, oh, you know, only an infinite good, even in, you know, from an intellectual point of view, only an intellectual good, uh, I'm sorry, only an infinite, infinite good has the inner capacity to satisfy your desire, you know, this unlimited capacity, desire for goodness. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that's how all of this could bring you back to God uh, from that Catholic, that inner, that inner core truth of, of the Catholic intellectual tradition. Tony, you brought up something in our offline conversation that fascinated me. And that is, you know, when society is running normally, we all have our place in it, our role in it, different, um, oh, different professions have different roles. Well, you say some of that's being turned upside down now because the medical profession thrust forward in a way that it, it probably hasn't been in quite a while. What do you mean by that? Well, so, you know, I look at it from the lens, you know, the lens of governance. Um, you know, a political leader, if we're looking at the, the common good, to go back with that core yes. notion that we began with, you know, a political leader needs to balance a lot of individual goods for society 
um, for society to be healthy, um, right? Obviously, there's economic goods. There is the good of public health. Um, there are, you know, national defense, which in this case would be the protection from potential evils. Um, all of these things, you know, have their place. In times of crisis, it's, you know, normal times, I think there is a fairly, you know, um, equilibrium of these goods, right? I mean, I mean, there's always, that's where you get the two different political parties kind of you know, jab jabbering at each other about exactly how these things should be aligned. But in general, they're aligned and, and enough for society to function robustly. In times of crises, what inevitably happens is there's one of these goods that gains a sort of hegemony over the others. Um, so my example would have been, you know, World War II, right? The, the survival of the country is at stake. So obviously national defense is going to be the dominant good and everything else is going to take a backseat to it and military advisors and the industrial military complex there all of them are going to gain this this yeah you know this newfound prize place in how decisions are being made the sphere of influence well in this case right it's not national defense it's a health issue and so it's going to be the medical profession and it is the medical profession that is you know rising to this, um, you know, instead of having an equilibrium of public health as, as one good, now it is the good that we're fixated on. Um, and that's just the way it is descriptively. That, and it's good that there's doctors who step up and lend their expertise. The danger, I think, as is when a subordinate good becomes dominant um, over the course of a long period of time, it can be detrimental to the well-being of the society and the common good, right? I mean, if, if a country fixates on national defense as its primary good, well, you know, I'm thinking ancient, ancient Sparta, right? This completely military society. Everything was structured by the military. Um, you know, it, there's a there's a soft disorder there, right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a society that might have some virtues, but it's also a society that's missing out on a lot of these other goods that just seem to be essential to a, to a you know, healthy society uh, with a robust common good. Um, so yeah, in this case, the medical profession is at the forefront. You know, do your job, do it well, but... Um, it's one of those things where there's always these latent dangers of that going beyond one's expertise to try to make these political decisions. Um, it at least entails proceeding with caution. How's that? Well, speaking of physicians, let's look at Catholic physicians who are trying to live their professional lives according to Catholic teaching. What do you think our role is within the broader medical profession itself? Especially in a pandemic like this. Um, well, um, it's an. I, I think Catholic physicians have, due to the Catholic social teaching and, and the Catholic virtues, I think they have a. They're well positioned to be an internal check in the profession itself against any abuses of power, um, because that's probably what we're talking about, right? I mean the medical profession has gained a power it didn't have six months ago in terms of public influence. Well, power 
you know, sometimes is necessary, but it can be addictive and lead to, to all sorts of problems. Well, if you have this internal check within the profession itself, um, with doctors with a strong moral back backbone, um, obviously not just Catholics, but it, since that's our context here, Catholic doctors having that strong moral fiber and, and backbone, they just need to exercise that um, if they think the profession itself is um, sort of exceeding its mandates. One of the things that we've heard a lot in the news, uh, especially in Catholic news websites, is there are some vocal Catholics saying that the churches should be open for mass, even against the order of governors. How would your friend Thomas Aquinas look at that? <laughs> um, so, I mean, th th there is a, a principle that Aquinas would immediately um, appeal to, which is that the spiritual order trumps the temporal order. Or, no or, pun intended. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> we don't get political on this show. Yeah. So, <laughs> and that's just just the way it is. I mean, it, it's the separation. You know, he he's looking at it in the medieval world in medieval Europe, um, where you actually have these societies where there is this this <laughs> these ongoing conflicts of church and state. Yes. Um, I mean, that is just the high Middle Ages from start to finish. And so he spends a lot of time articulating this principle. Um, and he does think the spiritual order necessarily trumps or uh, what, give me a different word there, um, supersedes <laughs> the, yes. the physical order. Um, but he also wants to make it clear, number one, that there's an autonomy, there's a rightful autonomy to the, uh, the state, um, that the state has its own autonomy, even if the church trumps it in terms of final ends, final goals, that the state has a proper autonomy that not even the church ought to be interfering. Is it true that the, the idea of separation of church and state really began with Christianity, that other religions really didn't have that concept before? Um, oh, that's taking me out of my sphere of... I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let's go back bit, into your comfort zone. <laughs> um, well, I, I think you definitely are seeing that principle articulated in the Middle Ages in a way that's probably surprising. I mean, you get it, you, you, even the defenders of the church who, who are protecting the prize role of the church, they, they don't want to give the church absolute power, right. uh, particularly political power. It's Correct. Just, you know, they're seeing on the ground, this is not working well. Um, so it, it's, there's got to be a way of, of preserving the supremacy of the church while preserving um, the rightful order of the state. But in, in terms of the question of the bishops and all of that, I mean, that's kind of now inverting it, looking at it the other way. Sure. You know, I, I think the Catholics who worry about this, um, they're affirming this principle. They see the principle that the spiritual pre supersedes um, the temporal. Um, they're reasoning from that principle, and I think that principle is a perfectly fine general principle for a Catholic. I mean, that's, that's probably one of the core principles of the faith. Um, but it doesn't necessarily follow from that that any given spiritual practice needs to occur at any given time, right? Um, so by that I mean, you know, if a bishop suspends public mass, he's not necessarily violating this principle. Uh, I mean, Aquinas would recognize that. I mean, there, there are times where this can be appropriate. So it would become, it would come down to how you apply that general principle to particular circumstances. Um, so at least conceptually, 
Aquinas would be, would say the bishops are, are not only within their right to suspend public worship, um, it, it may be the prudent thing to do. <coughs> but there does seem to, there is this inherent conflict though, isn't there? And, and I don't see that it has an easy resolution. I mean, on the one hand, we have examples in the gospel of saying, don't fear what can harm your body, fear what can harm your soul. Sure. And then we have the sort of give Caesar what is Caesar's and we, we need to follow, um, you know, the statutes of civil law. Um, but it is an, an apparent conflict. It, it is. And, and I think, um, you know, it, it's, it's probably above my pay grade to, to <laughs> say if a bishop is making the right decision. Um, you know, it, it's, um, I mean, I will say this. I mean, if, if a bishop suspends public worship, you know, it's probably prudent on, I'll say this, I don't think, I don't mean it as a critique of a bishop, but it could come off this way. You know, bishops should be reiterating that just because we're suspending public worship, we're not putting the temporal um, values over the spiritual values. We can still have these spiritual values in, and, and suggest various practices, right? Whether that be the rosary or, or whatever it might be. Now, it's so, interesting from a purely Catholic perspective, I've, I've found it kind of interesting talking with patients and with coworkers, um, it, it's provided an opportunity to, in a sense, say, you don't understand, I'm Catholic. For me not to get to go to mass is a big deal. For me not to get to go to confession, that's a big deal. And in some cases, it's actually provided an opportunity for dialogue with non-Catholics about how, how critical our, our faith practices are and how ancient they are. Um, yeah. And so that, I think in some cases, that's provided a little bit of fruit, um, but yeah. nonetheless painful. And, and I can add, and this is going beyond my expertise in a variety of ways, but we'll, we'll make some We do it up. all the time, so yes. yeah, why we have, not? We have a complete Lead on. license for that. Um, right. Yeah. You know, there, there has always been, you know, for Catholicism, there has always been this, the, the privileged place given to the priesthood, that, that the priest is the the consecrated priest, the ordained priest, is doing something that the lay person cannot do. Mm-hmm. You know, the lay person, yes, they have a share in, you know, God's, in, in Christ's priestly ministry, but, but there's something qualitatively different between what a lay person has and what a, what a priest has. Sure. Um, and it's a good reminder that as the priests continue to offer sacrifice on our behalf, they are actually doing what we should be wanting in, in the in the deepest way as a Catholic, right? They are taking on this role of mediating for us. You know, we can't make it to public worship, but they are still offering sacrifice on our behalf exactly. um, to God and serving as that mediator. Amen. Yeah, Tony, well, as we head into tying this up, can you, uh, you know, put this all together and say, how can in this time of social physical distancing, can we become better human beings instead of human doings? Um, well, I mean, probably just to, to kind of, you know, summarize a lot of what I've mm-hmm. already said, um, you know, it's that rediscovering maybe that the value of the monastic tradition of Catholicism, um, you know, going back to the Gospel of John, that Martha Mary, maybe it's not the Gospel of John. I think it's it is. It um, is. 
with 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 Mary sitting at the foot of Jesus and and Martha getting annoyed that Mary's not doing anything, um, and, and that's always you know the church fathers um, and defenders of monasticism have always used that passage as see we're we're doing what we're actually supposed to be doing. It looks like we're not doing anything, um, but we're doing exactly what Christ wants us to be doing. Uh, has been the basic argument, and, and it's there, right? I mean, it's in that it's in that Christ says she's chosen the better part um it's it's not ambiguous at all um and it's hard for i think you know as as, and and not even lay people here i think even those non-monastic priests it's 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 just easy to associate love with activity that you know if you're loving it means you're actively doing something and then if you're not actively doing something for another you're not loving them and and i think we need to um disabuse ourselves of that notion love does not entail activity it naturally lends itself to activity um no no two ways about that um, but the inner nature the you know the inner logos of love itself is not activity it's this willing the good to the other for their sake um and being with them if at all possible um with that presence and that's you know, that's what we want to recover in love. That's what we're missing right now. And so with the social distancing, that's, re- that's telling us what we're missing. And so again, when things return to normal. Doesn't Aquinas say that love also desires to be united with the beloved? Yes. Um, yes. His, his entire account of love is a theory of union. He, he defines love as a unit of force that by its nature, it is always impelling us um, to to go out and unite ourselves with something. Now, now sometimes it's not interpersonal love, right? I mean, if I'm right. desiring a, a, you know, a ice cream, Easter candy or whatever. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, I'm going to consume it. I, but, I, but that, that will love, unite that us. For it, <laughs> yes. I'm uniting myself to it, but with another person, right. I'm seeking to, to unite myself with them to have this shared existence. Um, and love is always there um, impelling us along um, to do that. So, Let's make this concrete. What do you suggest we concretely do uh, to be better lovers during this time of social distancing? Tom asked for concrete of a philosopher, of course. I know that's an oxymoron. I'm sorry, mea culpa. You know, I, I, um, I probably should put my wife on for this, and then she can tell you what I'm not doing. Um, I, I don't know that I'm an expert on on. Do the we marry concrete. sisters? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, you know, you take those opportunities if if you're with another person. I mean, if you're if you if you're in the house with another person, right, just sit with them and quietly, um, just enjoy each other's presence. Um, do that. I, now, I, I think if you're not. Be, you, you want to stimulate self-reflection. So, I mean, the philosopher in me is going to say, well, this is a perfect time to read those philosophical texts. Just pick up a Joseph Pieper that you've heard that name and you've always wanted to read it. Well, do it. Um, but you don't have to read. I mean, it, it can be just a matter of taking stock of yourself, doing a sort of a Socratic self-examination, um, purely philosophically, um, or if we're, if we're looking at it from the, from the Catholic perspective, um, you know, some sort of Lexio Divina or more contemplative prayer, even the rosary, right? And the rosary is that perfect blend of that active and contemplative prayer all in one. Um, you know, take up the rosary and, and do it once a day um, and see where it takes you. 
Well, Tony, thank you. Thank you for these great philosophical pearls and uh, some throwing us some lifelines, those of us that, that feel a little trapped in our houses with our big and small families, but thank you for your wisdom and thank you for bringing um, the, the church father, Thomas Aquinas, uh, home to us. Thank you very much. And oh, thanks to all of our listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share what we hope you think is the good news about <laughs> uh, with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.